Welcome, everybody. This is Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elana Levin. This is part two of my interview series with comics artist and writer Jerry Ordway. He's worked on so many important comics, there's a lot of ground to cover. In part one, we talked about his contributions to Crisis on Infinite Earths, JSA, Shazam. And today we'll talk about his collaborations with Alan Moore, Warren Ellis, Neil Gaiman, and what he's up to now. So give us a listen. I had a wonderful question sent to me by a comics writer and an editor, um, Atla Hatley. Sorry, Atla Kafne. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, one of them I wanted to share with you was that you did one of the first original graphic novel works in Cape Comics. And we're seeing a shift towards graphic novels in longer form comics, mm-hmm. even more so than 10 years ago when the quote made for the trade quote was a frequent term. How did Shazam, your original graphic novel, come about? And what do you feel about the market shift considering your history with previous attempts? Um. Well, what was the market shift for, you mean, to just collect books rather than original gra- graphic novels? Yeah. To, well, I mean, you know, you had Marvel, yeah. Marvel Epic doing those, yeah, yeah. like, individual graphic novel yeah. books. Um, but then you, you, you but, but your Shazam book was still pretty early in yeah. that. Well, I think, you know what the big difference was, and, and the, the, the reason I think that Shazam came about the way it did was really because I fought for it, because I didn't really have any... I didn't have any vested interest in doing it. I mean, um, the way it came to me was I had finished, I was working on Superman and I was penciling and I was writing it. And at a certain point I felt like, you know, my daughter was born in 92 and around, I was, I was feeling like, you know, when I first found out I was, you know, going to have a a child, I thought, well, I don't want to be working all the time, even though I'm at home. I wanted to be able to, you know, have some interaction and 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 do my dad thing and all that, you know. Um, so I was planning to kind of segue to Carlin was willing to let me just write Superman. And I was then going to work with Tom Grummet as the penciler. So suddenly they all looked at this was like, oh, I have free time to do a side project. And uh, so Jonathan Peterson, who I'd worked with on the Batman movie adaptation, Jonathan was going to do Shazam with John Byrne and Byrne mm-hmm. had plotted his whole thing out. And John had actually drawn like a couple pages and then something happened where he was, you know, he was rightly. So he felt like he was kind of screwed in this deal because he was supposed to reintroduce it. He was going to do a, you know, like a ground up kind of reboot. And unfortunately another editorial office was doing the war of the gods and it was George Perez was writing that. And a big key element in War of the Gods was the Marvel family, as they were. So this would have come out virtually the same time. And Byrne was doing a new take on it. And it was like, no, wait, you asked me to set the course for this. So he, anyways, he quit. And then Jonathan came to me and he said, why don't you do it? And I'm like, I don't really know. And he said, well, we'll do it. We'll do it like so we started talking about it and what it, what we came up with and what appealed to me was we'll do Captain Marvel as if it were like we did the Batman movie adaptation. We'll do Captain Marvel as if this were the adaptation of a, of a power Shazam movie. So it would have cinematic scope. It wouldn't necessarily be, you know, you wouldn't have to have a splash page with Captain Marvel on it. You wouldn't have, you know, I mean, it, it changes it when you have one complete book, you don't need to do different kind of, you know, 
splash page peaks and things story-wise, it changes it. So um, we conceived of that. And I said, that sounds fun. I said, but if I'm going to do it, I really want to do it full color because I was frustrated with the color in regular comics. I was frustrated not because I, I love seeing my stuff in color when I was drawing it. And then regardless of whether the color person did a good job or not, it wasn't <laughs> what I was seeing. So I had right, I had right. grand thoughts about how, you know, I love the look of the old Fleischer Superman comics. I mean, the, the cartoons. The cartoons. And yeah. I love the look of Disney, uh, you know, Snow White and all the Disney uh, cartoons because they were very painterly and stuff. So anyways, so that's what that how that happened. And when we were talking about it, DC was hedging their bets. They're like, what, you know, can we do a hardcover? Because they were starting to do the hardcover stuff. And it was like, okay, we'll do a hardcover. But then DC also wants to do a soft cover version, something that would be like a, you know, like more accessible because the hardcover is going to cost 20 bucks and, you know, they want to launch it and get a big audience. So can we do it also in a line art version, you know, with regular traditional comic coloring and do it as four issues. So it could be like the first four issues of a Power Shazam series. So I drew all the artwork in line art and kept, made a stat of it without color, <laughs> but then I colored the actual boards, you know, the actual paper. Mm -hmm. So it's full color. Each page is full color. And, uh, but this black and white version existed as for them to use if they did this other. So somewhere along the line, they decided they weren't going to do that. You know, they weren't going to do a, a comic book ed edition of it with flat color. So, um, but it was, it was basically, I broke the story down into four, kind of four chunks and it's a 96 page book, which is a long, I think that's the longest um, single story that I'd done. You know, it was a, it was a little daunting, but we broke it down, you know, and Jonathan helped we, he and I would go out to dinner or so or whatever. And we would, you know, hash it out and stuff. I got plenty, plenty of notes and things. And then he loaned me his copy of uh, the adventures of Captain Marvel serial. And that actually ha added a little fun to it as well. So, you know, we were able to look at something that was done a little more live action, a little different tone. And we, we did a little nod to the book in there, too. Um, when Captain Marvel, when he first gets the power uh, and he's fighting some guys on the roof of the Wiz Comics building, it was definitely hmm. inspired by the serial, except he wasn't throwing people off. You know, the, right, the serial, he's like, really, he's crazy. He's like throwing, he's actually chasing people. If they're trying to run away for their lives, he chases them, grabs them and throws them off a roof. <laughs> it's like, wow. Hey kids, comics. <laughs> yeah. That is an interesting take on the character. Um, but yeah, like, you, you know, the book is just like, uh, you know, really ambitious mm -hmm. and um, it was, you know, it's a really, really special thing. Like, do you, do you think that, uh, doing original graphic novels rather than just having things be trade paperbacks is, you know, is a good creative experience for, for making comics and for consuming them? I think or? it is, but I think it, what's different about then versus now is that then stuff didn't get collected. So, um, yeah, the, the appeal for anybody who did one of those books was the idea that it was going to be a book, you know, whereas a comic, it's a monthly comic and, the mindset was still pretty much, even though I felt like, I mean, a lot of people that were my generation, we felt like we were doing stuff that was going to be, it was going to have long lasting appeal and, and all that. None of that stuff was really guaranteed to be collected. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you had a choice of doing something that's 
well, that book will sit on a bookshelf. It's going to be there. It's going to be for the ages, you know, or here's, you know, the September 1989 issue of something that people will forget about when the December issue comes out. I mean, that, that was the mindset. So I think it's still value. There's still a value in doing it now because the one thing you can do with it that's, that's different is like what we did with Shazam or what, I mean, Neil Gaiman did this with, with uh, projects as well in the, in the eighties and nineties is that you take something and you create a book that isn't dependent on, like I was saying, a splash page and a, in other words, a comic book, if it's printed, even if it's collected into, into, you know, five issues collected into, into a trade or or a hardcover, it's still going to have these up and down peaks that are, Mm -hmm. you know, that belong to the monthly, you know, the, uh, the, the, just the way a monthly comic is, is done. So you're, you're going to try to end on a cliffhanger. You're going to try to whatever. Whereas with a, with a, a, an, an original book, you can do it and create it more like a, a prose novel where you can pace it yourself. You're not really dependent on 22 page chunks. You know, you could do 10 page and then 15 or 20 or something as chapters. Um, but you can also like DC. I know has done the, uh, they've done some uh, um, Superman, and they've done some as as original hardcovers. And and I don't, I don't know how they've sold, but it seems like a good idea. I just mm-hmm. when I was when I was younger and I was reading comics before I got into them is when Marvel started doing. They were trying to do, you know, color, graphic novels and and things like that, and it was an appealing. In, in a way, it's funny, too, thinking back on it, but it was the idea of doing something. No one said, hey, I want to do a 96-page Superman graphic novel. They would do their own character, or they would do something totally yeah. unlike what they were doing in their monthly work, which was superheroes. So um, I think that part of it is I'd rather see original graphic novels that might not be Batman or Superman. You know, I think it might be more mm-hmm. fun to see a hardcover of even if it's a, a licensed character, but something that's not out in a monthly form, you know, um, mm-hmm. take a chance and do, you know, do Metamorpho or some character that doesn't, you know, what I mean, some character that's him. not really uh, already played out in a in a monthly. Because a lot of times things are competing against themselves. Like you do a mm-hmm. twenty five dollar Superman book, does that take some of the readership away from the monthly books? Or you know, I mean, I don't know if that still even applies anymore, but it feels like it would still, uh, you know, it'd be better to do something different. So. Well, you've definitely used that medium from, you know, your own new characters as well. Like uh, talk to me about Proton a bit. Well, Proton's one of those characters that I did in my fanzine in 1975. And it's, it's more of a, it, it, it kind of encompasses my, my love of UFO lore. (laughs) And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I believe all this stuff, but I find it fascinating. I just don't know yeah. that you can't. I mean, it, it's really hard to wrap your brain around things being real or not real because so much of this is, you know, lore now, when, especially in the years since X-Files and, and all the shows that have kind of, <clears throat> you know, turned it into a narrative to a degree. But uh, um, that's where Proton started. It was a, it was a, a spaceman kind of uh, story and, and, uh, I looked at it years later. Well, I did the same thing with The Messenger was another fanzine character I had done in like 1974. And I totally rethought it when I did it for Image. I did a, a one-shot in like 1999. 
And uh, I've been working on pages, but just not as motivated, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing. It's like some people live and breathe all this stuff, but I actually feel like if I'm not working on a deadline, it's really hard to motivate myself to do work. <laughs> you know, I'd rather go outside and work on the lawn or uh, a project or, or, or go do something, you know? Um, and I have friends who just seem to live and breathe drawing and that's great. And I think I just never had that, you know, I always felt like some of these things were means to an end. And when I'm doing it, I'm really into it, but I'm not like laying in bed at night going, Oh, I can't wait to get up the next tomorrow because I'm going to do this, this, and this, you know, if I do that, it's like, I can't wait to get up tomorrow because I want to paint the side of the house before the sun hits it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but with the proton stuff, I decided to try to, since I, I started doing more conventions, I wanted something to sell. I didn't want to do a sketchbook necessarily. So I thought I would do 10 page new chapters and then the last half of back half of these comics would be sketches, commissions that I'd done during that a given year or whatever. And uh, I figured that would be a way to kind of maybe force myself or give myself a deadline. Um, and I haven't wanted to 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 Kickstarter or anything like that because I feel I'd rather do it and have the material and then go and maybe find a way to collect it or find a way to to, to put it out in a more you know with a little better distribution or something. So, uh, it's just, it's always a tough, you know, it's always the balance of how much money do I need to pay my bills and how much energy do I have left over <laughs> to do something of my own. But, uh, but the stories float around and I, I just, like I said, I, last week I finally cleared up some other things I was getting done and, and I, I, I sat down and I, I did like thumbnails for the next, uh, 10 pages the next chapter of, of Proton because I didn't get to do one last year because I was working on a couple deadline things. And so I'm hoping to use the uh, downtime now to, to try to get enough material to put out another, another, um, you know, comic slash sketchbook to, to take with me to shows. Um, actually, I, I'm going to ask some of my own particular nerdy interests on this. I, I learned when I was, doing a run through DC universe to see if you had done something I didn't know about that you had uh, worked with psychedelic sword and sorcery legend and erstwhile <laughs> member of Hawkwind, Michael Moorcock yes, on his Tom Strong comics. I did. Which, I mean, I've read many a comic based on the work of Michael Moorcock, mm -hmm. you, you know, all, all of the L, all the Elric stuff guys yeah, yeah. were, is, is that, that that's his character in his world, Elric of Melbourne, et cetera. I, I don't know that I'd seen a comic he'd literally written himself before rather than had been like reinterpreted by someone else. Yeah. And then you're doing it in Alan Moore's universe, it's layer upon layer. Tell me about that. Well, that was kind of cool because I, I really, um, I remember uh, Moorcock from the various comic things that happened in the seventies. Like I think Roy did, you know, a couple things. Roy Thomas had ad adapted a couple of uh, yep. uh, stories and, um, and I know classic. I, I, and Craig Russell, P. Craig Russell had done the yep. uh, really beautiful, you know, graphic novels, really, of them. So it was it was it was really kind of cool. But I, I, Scott Dumbier had called me up and he said, I have Michael Moorcock interested in doing uh, a Tom Strong pirate story. And I was like, wow, that's cool. 
So here's the way it worked, which was really kind of funny, was Michael wrote um, without any page breaks or anything. He just basically wrote a story. <laughs> and so I got it and I chopped it into pages and panels and, you know, figured out, pulled dialogue from it and everything. And we made it into a comic. It was written as a comic, but it wasn't written in any kind of like comic book type format. So right. it was it was fun because it really was more like work and plot style, like the Marvel style, as opposed to because Alan, when Alan Moore would write these things, I would get and I actually is funny because Scott Dumbier just tweeted uh, earlier today that he had been going through his files and he found a bunch of Alan Moore scripts from the ABC Comics era. And I said, hey, if you, you know, I, I wish I still had mine because I used to get them faxed and faxes fade after a while. But what was funny was these things would come through the fax machine and I would run out of paper because they're like 40 pages <laughs> long or whatever. And I would I would uh, um, I did copy them, but I would, I would copy and, and reduce them down so that I could fit like one page of script on one piece of paper because it's easier to work that way. So you don't forget something like, in other words, if you're drawing something and suddenly, you know, you, you think, Oh, I finished the page and then you turn it and it's like, wait, there's another panel. <laughs> like, you know, how do you undo that? So um, I would always take his, these giant rolls of faxed scripts and stuff and cut them up. So it was the opposite of that. Cause the Moorcock thing was like very concise. There was plenty of room to visualize, which was really hmm. fun. You know, it wasn't like it, it. I wasn't doing like 10 panel pages or whatever. Um, and with Alan Moore, you do a 10 panel page because he's written 10 panels of like amazing uh, stuff. Nope. Again, like 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 George Perez is in his own is in, is in a, is in his own league or whatever. Alan Moore was is in his own league, you know, because he'll he'll describe detail in a back background of a panel on a 10 panel page every panel will have like in-depth descriptions. And uh, uh, for a while in the, I guess the earlier 2000s, I was in an art group that uh, with Dave Gibbons. And when I was doing the Tom Strong stuff, Dave, <laughs> Dave had seen one of them in print and he said, hey, nice job on that. You know, and it was like kind of like a nod, nod, wink, wink, because we both knew what those things, you know, how hard they would are like to, to work receive. on. Yeah. And yeah. I said, well, I did have problems <laughs> trying to get some of the little subtle things that Alan was describing. And he then told the story about how Alan had asked for, you know, he had described this panel where light is coming in through the window, filtering through the window and there's motes of dust. And, 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 I'm, and he said, of course, when I drew it, I drew bars of light and in the motes of dust, of course, were implied. <laughs> and I was like, implied? Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, getting back to the Moorcock, it was very much fun because it also used real pirate. I mean, there was, uh, I, I did a lot of research um, on the various pirates that were in this story, but there were like seven or eight uh, pirates based on real, you know, real pirates. And, uh, and it's a big challenge to draw pirate ships and stuff if you're not I'm oh, not God. I'm no you know I'm no pirate expert so uh, it was but it was a lot of fun. Are like boats are like the hardest boats are like the hardest thing to draw. Well, right? If you if you're a sailor, you know what all the lines do. But if you're an artist, you look at it and you go, oh, my God, how many ropes are connected to that sail and what do they do? <laughs> I, I I have a hard time drawing something if I can't at least somehow figure out how it works 
So I tend to do a lot of research on stuff and I'm not like a stickler, like I'm going to become a sailor or anything, but I do, I've always felt a little bit like as an artist, I'm like a method actor. I have to <laughs> inhabit whatever that, mm -hmm. you know, because I think that's where you do get, it, it, it makes it less generic. You know, I mean, comics can be very generic and I always feel like I want to know somewhat of what I'm doing or have a feel for what the character might be going through because it adds a little extra element, even if it's not, you know, again, it's a fantasy or it's a made up story. It gives it a little more weight. So I, um, well, I, that makes sense. I mean, you're someone whose drawings of architecture, I think are always really great. Like I love whenever you're drawing any of the old cityscapes, mm -hmm. I just think you do such a good job of the art deco architecture and sixties architecture too. Yeah. Well, like with Shazam, I, I did a lot of research into art deco because I just wanted that I wanted the city to look art deco, you know, and uh, it's much harder to pull off than you can imagine because, you know, when you start researching stuff, you realize that, that art deco, I mean, how would you design a, everything in art deco? It's, it's, I mean, there's, you know, not every building is a big grand building, you know, and uh, right. so it, it, I had a ton of books and, and Jeanette Kahn was a big, <clears throat> big deco, art deco fan. And she actually, um, she was really, really thrilled with that. I chose that as a, as a, a theme for the, uh, for the Fawcett city stuff. And, and she found a, a couple of books of Miami art deco for me at the time too. Now, now it's easier to do stuff. You look up on Google or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. you can find every kind of reference imaginable, but in the old days you had to have books, you know, you had to go to the library yeah. for something that you couldn't, you know, maybe a book would be out of print or something. So, um, but you know what the pirate thing was funny. I hadn't drawn anything really pirate wise that then they did the Tom strong, like the two part story. And then in the last couple of years, I was drawing SpongeBob comics for, with uh, my old, who was assistant editor on Shazam. Chris Duffy was editing the SpongeBob comic and uh, the uh, Derek Dryman, who was one of the original guys on SpongeBob. Derek was writing these just terrifically funny stories. So funny. And they, most of them wound up being pirate things. So I suddenly finding hmm. myself dr doing all these pirate stories. I still don't know how to, how to, how the, sh the sales work or any of that, but I at least had more reference collected by that time. But, uh, but it, it's so funny. funny. I mean, you go again, go for years. It's fun to have something that's like out of your, out of your normal, uh, um, you know, whatever you normally draw or whatever. It's fun. Like the same with that, working with Alex on, Something about a magic is that you're doing something that I haven't like, well, I never drew this before. I never drew, you know, whatever monster like that. Or so, you know, that kind of makes it uh, a challenge. You know what I mean? And and the challenge is what I think is, is kind of what keeps you going, you know, do something different or what have you. So you have a new project you're working on now. Um, that's uh, North Norse mythology based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Neil Gaiman book, um, mm -hmm. which coincidentally I actually did have in <clears throat> in audible format. So he read, you know, he did the reading of it. And it I really loved it. So when they, I think uh, I heard, I'm trying to remember if I heard from Dark Horse first or Craig Russell, but um, Pete Craig Russell had just done the uh, American Gods <clears throat> for Dark Horse, the comic adaptation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that this is like his, he's now doing the, he's kind of like the showrunner basically on this thing. Hmm. So he's done the, the comic adaptations, adapted the script 
And what I think my story is that Loki and the uh, dwarfs, um, and it's about how the gods got their, their, like how Thor gets his hammer, how Odin gets his spear, et cetera. And it's a really fun story. It's like, I think my chunk of it is 33 pages, which is broken up over the first issue of Norse mythology. And then I think it takes up most or most of the second issue. So it's like the originally was going to be, I don't even know what the publishing schedules are now, but it was, I think it was originally for uh, May and June or something, but uh, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure if solicitations are still going on as, as normal, but, uh, but it was a lot yeah. of fun. It was Craig did the, he did like uh, breakdowns um, kind of little stick figures to break the story down and the boards, the comic pages actually had hand lettering on it. It was beautiful lettering. Um, which was really kind of a fun throwback too. It makes you, made me miss hand lettering a lot more. Um, cause oh, I love hand lettering. I really do. Well, those, those people who were doing it were really yeah. unsung heroes. Uh, I worked a lot with John Costanza and John Costanza was so great. And, uh, I mean, I think I did, Albert de Guzman did a lot of adventures of Superman. These were really talented people. I mean, again, every job is harder when you look at what actually it entails. But uh, yeah, um, there was something nice about working on a page that had the the dialogue on it. I think it's better as an inker if you're inking something to see all that you could follow the story. But just mm. even as a penciler, I used to, I had a way of working that was a great way of working, and I would do really rough breakdowns, kind of like what Craig P. Craig Russell was doing at the Norse Mythology you would do like a, a panel breakdown and it would just be stick figures or what have you, but then you'd indicate and I would write the dialogue based on that. And then it would send to the letterer and the letterer would letter in the balloons and border in the panel borders and you would get it back and you would draw to that. So you weren't wasting drawing under a balloon or some complicated right. building that was going to be covered up by a word balloon or what have you. But you also could use it as a design thing because you knew where the, where the word balloons would be, which is important, I think, you know? Yeah, for sure. For in terms of not wasting effort, but I just, I, I always, I can tell when something is lettered by hand and I like the way it looks more. It's just a, a fact. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I have this problem I, with my, with the proton stuff. Cause I was, as I was approaching this, I, I've been frustrated because the other chapters I did, I did the lettering digitally. And while I felt, I just felt kind of like hamstrung by it. It just didn't, uh, so I was, I was thinking, gee, it would be nice to hand letter this one, but then the other ones are already lettered. So I'd have to like, I guess I'd have to go back and re-letter them if I, when, I, when I finally collected everything. But uh, I was trying to figure out a better way. I, I There used to be a, a good, uh, I used to have a font of my uh, hand lettering that I could do computer-wise, but it was so many generations computer-wise. Oh. <laughs> I know Colleen Duran has a font that people can do of her writing, which yeah. is like gorgeous. Um, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I guess it also makes me think like, I mean, do you work digitally, digitally first now, or no. do you work paper? First? I still like drawing on paper. What I've noticed, yeah. what I, what I enjoy is I don't have to use whiteout anymore. Like on a, uh, if I'm drawing something and I go, oh, mm -hmm. that eye is a little bit lower than the other one. I let it go. I keep moving on. And then when I get to the scanning and stage, I do a lot of digital editing. 
Yeah, fix it in post. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> and it, it actually, it's, it's an amazing tool for that. Um, and uh, the other problem is, as, and again, not to complain about being older, but I, I had to get uh, the transition lens, lenses, um, and they're, they do make it harder to, it's harder to draw proportions because, you know, the transitions are, they're just, I don't know, my eyes never adjusted to them. I can read and everything, and, but, but it does something because when I get the scans, I look at the scans and I go, wow, the guy's head's too big. And it's like, how did that happen? Or the body's a little bit out of, and, you know, it, you don't notice it when you're looking at the board, at the paper. So it's, it's definitely since just the last couple of years, I've been noticing it. Um, but again, the digital stuff is a, a perfect way to correct that because you can, Right. you also, I'm looking at the computer screen straight on, whereas that the drawing table is at slight angle. So. I just feel like there's a different look and I, I, it's very, I, it is unusual for me to not be able to tell if something originated on paper or, mm-hmm. or on a, on a tablet first. And it's, I, I feel bad because I don't want to be telling artists like I presume a certain amount of expenditure of labor right. for you in order to like this. Uh, and I also recognize that it's partially a result of like, you know, I, when digital, when people began working digitally, when I remember it, it was terrible because yeah. it was the nineties and it looked like shit. Yeah. So I'm kind of just like scarred. Like I will never like the look of digital coloring as much as I like old school because when digital coloring began, it looked really bad. Yeah. And I thought, wow, things looked so much better in the eighties. What are you doing? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to tell people like they have to work a certain way, but I just, there's something about the aesthetic that still speaks to me. You know what the problem, here's, here's something I I've actually, I thought hard about this <clears throat> digital coloring because the process is different. The process itself, I think is what leads to some crappy results. And the process is that people tend to get someone to do flats for them. And, and to describe flats is like someone takes the line art and basically will select areas and just drop co- color and flat color into a page, which then whoever's doing the finish color can adjust and can do airbrush effects and all this stuff. But it's basically when you flat a page, you generally flat a page with kind of basic colors, almost like you would in the old days, you know, like the green is green and red is, so they're, they're flatting colors that are different enough so that when you use the select tool, it'll select that, that area. So the problem is everything's on an assembly line. So sometimes when you're, Colorists are always pressed for time because they're the pretty much the last guy. The letterer is now doing the the production on the book, which didn't used to be the case. So the letterer is actually getting that pages sometimes before the colorist, um, but the colorist is always pressed for time. So if you got a 22-page job, a lot of these guys have to people have to do it in two three days. So they're going to get help, and I think sometimes what you're seeing and what looks sometimes my complaint is a lot of times stuff looks muddy. It's a lot of browns and a lot of grays and stuff. And I think a lot of that is a result of pages being flatted and then like, hey, I just don't have time to do much here. So I'm just going to, you know, use these colors and add a little effect on it or whatever. But uh, in the old days, like flat color, you had a 64 choice, 64 choices, right? You had three colors and combinations gave you 64 variations. When you have a limitation, you work harder, I think, than if you have millions of colors. You know what I mean? 
Um, mm-hmm. That's a that's like a mental change. So it's like you have something to push back against. Like we were always trying to draw and trying to figure out ways to have line art actually look good in crappy printed books. Once the books became printed better, um, that 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 there was nothing to push against, <laughs> you know. Right. So it, same was true with color. You you can look like amazing flat color jobs that are amazingly complex. Like the most amazing one is still what Barry Windsor Smith did on his Wolverine uh, story that was like serialized. And I think Marvel, mm-hmm. whatever their Marvel weekly Comics book presents. Yeah. Um, the color on that is all flat color and it was all done, you know, by whoever worked for the place cutting, cutting films and stuff. So it was all hand done based on his color choices and his color guide, but it's, the most amazing thing to look at. It's crazy how, how uh, beautiful it is, you know, and painterly. But again, it's like you're working, you're working to try to overcome the limitations and you work harder. So. I also think a piece of it though, is that like, we, we remember what the beginning of digital color looks like and how bad that was. So we're just sort of scarred for life because there's digital colorists today who do amazing stuff but because we came and saw it yeah. before people had actually figured it out, yeah. we still sort of have like, like, I can't, like, I, I, I don't know. I think that's part of it. Cause I definitely know that there's digital colorists doing tremendous stuff yeah. now, but I just, that there was that period in between yeah, where, yeah. boy, whoa. Uh, and then it's always really ridiculous when they try to use up, when they try to change right. coloring to from the older style. Well, Steve, Steve, Steve Olaf. Irrelevant. I always thought Steve yeah. Olaf was, was a really, good colorist before digital but you know he was one of those guys who had uh, a good color palette i think that's what it still comes down to is there are people who i mean digital as it's as a as a medium or as a tool or whatever i think is can be whatever you want it to be but um like if you look again using dan panosian who i mentioned earlier dan does a lot of covers and Dan usually colors his covers and he uses textures and he uses Zipatone type of effects. I love Zipatone. And and it's it's a, a visually it's a neat a neat look and it's unusual because it looks kind of old school and new school at the same time. But for example, Laura Martin, I think Laura's like just a fabulous she's got to be a tremendous painter. I'm I'm thinking she's got the mm-hmm. most beautiful palette that she 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 draws from. And uh you know, it's not, it's the, the limitations really are, it's like you have to find someone whose palette you like. And and that's how it's been for me. Like when I was uh, first doing comic stuff, I would always get colorists who were kind of old school, who would do green against blue against red. And it was always frustrating because it, there's no subtlety in it. And now you almost have too much subtlety. So the, right. the it does still come down to your palette. So when I was in this, like I was a teenager, I remember the Hillebrand brothers would do the Lord of the Rings calendars. They were painted mm-hmm. calendars and I would buy those things. And I just loved their use of colors, their use of cool against warm. It was all the stuff that, you know, you, I would have learned if I was, in, if I'd gone to college, I guess, if I had more art classes, but it's the complimentary, the split compliment, all these, these things with color. Um, but that's what that's what I fell in love with. So when I see people using that uh, that kind of palette, I immediately love it. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, um, the associations yeah. too. Yeah, but it's just there's a look to it. It's like looking at a Maxfield Parrish painting. It's mm-hmm. it's enhanced. It's not life. It's enhanced. You know, it's like somebody taking every great sunset that ever happened and it's always there. You know what I mean? So it's it's Frank, Maxfield Parrish is like a a perfect person to kind of like think this is comic book color because it was you know, it's not realistic. It's beautiful, but it's more than nature, you know? Mm-hmm. So and it's supernatural. And that's what comics always, I think comics always need, or most comics need something that's bigger than life. And I think that's why, you know, people like Neil Adams were, were influential and, and great were because they were, and, and Jack Kirby before that, but they were able to take reality and then jump off from it, you know? Um, Sometimes stuff looks a little too traced now to me, you know, like yeah. art can be a little too, uh, it, it, it looks a little dull, but not everybody's like that. Just a couple people, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so the, that's, that's a, that's a result of really better tools, you know? Um, you didn't have that, you know, when I was drawing comics, you could take Polaroids, but Polaroid film was really expensive. <laughs> you couldn't afford it yeah. on a comic budget. So you had to draw stuff from, you know, basically from your head or looking at a picture and trying to correct it somehow. But uh, so, every, I mean, like I said, the tools are just, they're just tools. So computer stuff, it's just a tool. If you can add textures, textures always make stuff a, a little better to me. Um, mm-hmm. That's where I go, f- where I, why, I, why I like inking on paper is that I can use my pen and I can get textures. I don't need a perfect line, although it's nice to look at when you're, you know, looking on the computer screen at 200% or 300%. It's not necessary, you know. Ultimately, it's it's printed smaller and all that rough line is going to tighten up when it gets reduced anyway. So it, it's like almost a, um, it's like a, a, an illusion of perfection that you don't need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would be remiss. Uh, you have an essay that you wrote a while back about um, age discrimination in the comics industry. And it was, you know, resonate with, it with a lot of people and I think brought to light stuff that people might not have considered. Do you, do you feel like that's an ongoing issue in in the field? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, you know, I don't take it personally. I did take it personally back then. But I, you know, after a couple of years later or whatever, I realized it happens to everybody, you know? I mean, it's, it's not, it's unfortunate, but it's been going on in pretty much every industry. You know, the only downside for comics, I always think of it because when I was, when I was uh, working on comics in the eighties, I always felt like uh, a lot of writers would have a shorter shelf life because, you know, people were writing four or five books. And you basically run through your repertoire and you just start repeating yourself. And that's true mm-hmm. to a deg- degree with art, but art can, I think art, some the drawing part of it, it has, has to evolve a little bit more as you, you know, because you're always having to draw current day stuff. So you're always having to keep updated somehow on fashion, on, mm-hmm. on cars, on whatever. Well, um, you should be at least. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> but I mean, it, so, so there's always going to be a shelf life. Um, what's happened, mm-hmm. I think, in more in the last say 25 years is really a more result of turnover editorially and the fact that you know it seems reasonable to expect 
someone who's 20 years old or 22 or 23 might not want to work with a person who's been around a lot. You know what I mean? They, they maybe it's a grandfather thing or it's a, you know, you know, I just want to do my own thing. I want to hire people who are my age or whatever. I totally get it. <clears throat> but again, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it does happen. I think in, in the older days, there were probably people working on staff who were maybe older and they, they felt like they, you know, had people who were reliable, then they would use them. You know, even in the 80s, DC went out of their way. And I always liked that about um, comics back then is that they went out of their way to, you know, to, to keep people, at least give them work here and there. I mean, you had guys like Gil Kane worked in, you know, really up until his death. You had John Buscema worked up until his mm -hmm. death. Um, you know, if somebody was uh, lost an assignment, somebody else would say, oh, hey, this so-and-so just lost his, his book, you know, use use him or use her or whatever. Um, so I think that that did change. You know, I think uh, it, you know, it, it feels personal and it hurts when it happens to you because you don't think it's going to happen to you. Um, you know, I think I maybe even mentioned in that thing, but when I was in the eighties, I was working with guys like Gil Kane and, you know, worked with uh, um, Kurt Swan. Kurt was a terrific guy, just really a, just a nice, nice guy. I mean, I still miss him, you know, to this day. I know, um, yeah. But he, uh, you know, I work with those guys. I never felt like, oh, I don't want to work with them. I always thought these guys have so much history. It's it's amazing. These people saw, you know, they saw so much stuff over the years and they did so much great work. And there was like kind of a wave where that started changing even back then because, you know, the comic, direct comic market may not be as as willing to buy a Kurt Swan comic as they would, you know, some new guy or whatever. And, um, but they still, you know, DC still had people up there who would, who would make sure these guys got assignments. So, I mean, George, George Tuska is another good example. I mean, George Tuska had plenty of careers over the years working in comics and, uh, he, he worked for DC and, you know, if somebody was still willing to do something, you'd call him up and, and Hey, you know, you give him a job. Now, I just, I don't know that that's there. I mean, it, I don't get it. I mean, I, I do, but like what I don't get is like a lot of the people and like, you tell me if you have an issue with me saying it this way, but like a lot of the people making decisions at the publishers are very interested in bringing back old characters and nostalgia. And they want to just reset whoever is the new version of something to whoever it was when they were growing up. But then they're not bringing back the talent right. who made it. So they have an artist whose stuff looks like whatever generic new stuff. But like, what does that have to do with like, well, this better be the Wally, this better be the flash of my right, youth or right. else. And it's like, it, it, is it really just about, do you really just care about the character? You don't care at all about like the creators who like gave it the tone or who did the drawings yeah. that like connected with you. Cause that to me just seems so weird. Yeah. Well, I feel, I mean, I feel them? left out. To be honest, when I see, like when they do their 80th anniversary book and here's here's your 12 covers uh, and different people doing eras and they have like young people doing 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 60s, whatever. And I think, well, if ever there was a spot for me, it would be on a, on a retro cover because I did the 40s characters and all that. Mm -hmm. I just never get asked, you know, and I, I don't know, like I said, after a while, you think initially you think, well, which is worse, that they don't care 
you know, or that they just mm. don't want to give you work. It's like it's neither neither uh, you know is a is a good um, is a good choice. But another thing that happens, and this is what I felt like happened with me during the especially during the two thousands. I mean, I think my work petered out around around the time that my daughter was getting into college. So it was like 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. And mm -hmm. um, I was finding it that because I was needing the work, I was doing, I mean, the last, you know, I, the stuff I did on JSA, I was like a regular fill-in guy because the regular penciler couldn't do a 22-page story because the scripts were late. So it's like month to month, hey, can you do five pages? Hey, can you do 12 pages? Hey, can you do... And I did that because yeah. I enjoyed the work, but ultimately I think it winds up making you the guy who will take on the crappy deadline job rather than, oh, wow, this is great. This guy really saved us. It's like, oh, you know, we're not going to give him a full issue because he's, you know, he's the fill-in guy or he's the, you know, it, so I don't know if you, if you wind up doing that to yourself by virtue of needing the work and taking it, but, uh, but my projects felt like they were on a descending order. Like if somebody gave me a Superman thing, I know I could sell a Superman thing. But if you're going to say, hey, we want to relaunch Lobo, it's like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that for you. You know what I mean? Because it's not a character people know me for. So I'm not going to be the guy who's going to bring the audience to Lobo. It's like, and the same is true. I did um, The Human Bomb with Jimmy, Jimmy Palmiotti. And it was a really fun story. And Jimmy and, and Justin Gray wrote a, a really neat story. Um, it was a lot of fun. But I knew the minute I, I was asked to do that, it's like, this thing is not going to sell. And no offense to them, but a character like that is going to have limited potential. So if I do it and it sells poorly, do I get blamed for that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So right. so it's like, a, it, it's almost, a, I, I felt like that's part of what I was saying in the in the, my essay was, there's a point where you, you you become marginalized, but it's not by your own choice. Like if I was Jim Lee and I could say, I'm only going to do a Batman book with, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, my sales profile and my, you know, whatever marketing, uh, the capability for the marketing company to sell or the department to sell me to comic stores is going to be better because I'm just doing these really great high profile projects. But that's not the reality, you know? Yeah. I never got to choose that. It's like, you know, here's, uh, again, Dan DiDio. I would go in to talk to him, and it was always, he was always friendly. I always felt like I got along with him. But I would say, Dan, what can I, I'd like to pitch something. I pitch stuff, nothing would ever stick, you know? So I was doing, I did, I have a whole folder on my hard drive, tons of pitches. And, mm -hmm. and, and none of them ever happened. They, you know, you take you down the, it's like they're taking you down the alley and then somebody clubs you when you get into the, <laughs> the dark part. But, um, oh my God. but I, I'd go in there and I, I started, I'd be, while they were still in New York, I'd go up there and I talked to him and he'd say, I got something for you. I got something. And then when I get the call, it's like, I, I want you to do this Lobo thing. And I'm like, uh, okay, mm -hmm. that's what you see. And that's fine. You know, and I did my best on it, but I don't, you know, I'm like, this is not going to be a big seller, you know? Um, and I did the challenges, the unknown with him and we were, mm -hmm. we were going to write, co-write it and it was going to be five issues. And after we plotted out a five, you know, five story arc, suddenly it became three issues. And it's like, well, it was so compromised by the time it came out. And again, it's not going to sell it's challenges, the unknown. You know what I mean? There's, there's certain things 
that you know, I know have been in comics long enough that they're, they're just not going to sell. They may have people love it, but it's not going to be a big seller. So, I mean, it, it, it's, that's the part that I, I think I kind of, I, I do wish had been different, but, uh, like, you know, I, I, I do a Shazam variant cover. Why not? Well, nobody asks, you know, I don't have a problem with whatever they're doing with these characters. I never, I'm not like a vocal guy saying, why well, it has to be my way and all <laughs> this stuff. I'm a, I'm a, an agreeable right. person. So it is, it is, uh, interesting, but as I said, I know a ton of people, you know, from that same era who were cut off suddenly and had no work and they, <clears throat> you know, they go to shows and they do, uh, they do commissions at shows and that's how they get by. But uh, these are all people who I think they could be doing comics. You could do a, you could do an eighties Batman or an eighties Superman, or if you want, you know what I'm saying? If you don't want to, if you don't think, Oh, maybe a younger audience is going to buy it. They could target some of this. Yeah, and for real. It's not like there isn't a, a, a large audience of older people. There are, right. <laughs> there's a lot of, they're all on Twitter. They're all saying, I liked it the way it was back then. I think they could. I think they, you know, they, they before Dan, I mean, the last summer, when he, after San Diego, um, and again, I always got along with Dan. I have nothing against Dan DiDio. I think he's a, he's a super big comic fan, which was great for DC. It was great for comics. But. Dan was complaining in some article he did or some interview about the fact that the when they're doing these facsimile comics, that they were selling better than the original new comics that they were doing and how, you know, if something's wrong with or it was he was it was like a complaining kind of tone. And I read the article and I thought, wow, you can't complain about that. If the if the these retro books that are basically facsimiles of books that were done in the 80s or 90s or whatever it was are still selling, to me that indicates there is an audience for that type of comic. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe not everybody's going to love what you're doing. That's always going to be the case. Not every book's going to be a success, you know. Um, and you can try new stuff, and that's I think that's great. I think Marvel. I, I feel it more from Marvel because I've been reading more Marvels maybe, but I think Marvel's got a lot of representation for just about everybody in those books. And mm -hmm. I think that's terrific. I mean, I really do. I think it's great because it's different flavors, you know, but yeah. if you could still sell vanilla and chocolate, why don't you, <laughs> you know, it just feels like you're leaving money on the table. I mean, what I would really like to see more of is I'm re I really realized this as I was talking with you is like, I just really like intergenerational combinations. Mm -hmm. Like my favorite, my favorite Alan Moore is Alan Moore with Kurt Swan yeah, doing yeah. whatever happened to the man from tomorrow. I, I love you and Alex to can't be working on stuff together. Yeah. Like I like people from different generations combining either an aesthetic that comes from a particular period, but is still like can work in other settings yeah. with, um, with, you know, a different kind of perspective and this could work with writer or artist. It can work in either direction. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that we have interesting stuff to see and say about each other's work. And we also, like, you know, we were influenced by that stuff that we saw coming up. Yeah. So there's this connection. And, like, who wouldn't? Or, like, I remember when Gail Simone had um, John Ostrander co-write a couple issues of Secret Six, right? right. And it's like... What it's, what could possibly be more Secret Six than, like, the original writer of Suicide right, Squad, right? right? Well, but see, I mean, we we love it. No, I was gonna say, well, one of the, the that's it seems like a no brainer, but yet, I mean, I worked on this convergence thing from a couple of years ago when DC was moving to California, yes. 
And Convergence mm -hmm. was pitched to me as a retro thing. And it was like, oh, well, we're reaching out to people. And then when I, when I like, for example, I got to work with a really good artist. Ben Caldwell was really great. But Ben, because of all the weird editorial things of not knowing what we were, he was supposed to draw specifically and all this, he wound up only being able to do that first issue of a two-issue thing. Oh, come so, on. It's a two-issue thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then like he, he, was, he was finished the first one, and I hear from the editor, it's like, well, we're going to move him on to this other project. So, you know, you have a different artist on the second one. And that, all that's fine, I guess. You have to roll with it. But out of all the Convergence books, they were selling them on Nostalgia. But yet you had mm -hmm. a Suicide Squad. Now, here, this is just me. If I was the editor <laughs> and I had a two-issue Suicide Squad set in the 80s, as all these things were like time capsules, right? Suicide Squad yeah. would be done by Don, John Ostrander. And I'd find Luke McDonald and I'd get Carl Kiesel. I would get that they're still there. They're probably going to want to do it. Same with the other stuff. I was like, why don't you make an effort? Like they got me to do Infinity Inc. I was originally going to do Superman. And um, then mm -hmm. the editor of the thing or the overseer of it got canned and they put somebody new on. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we want you to do Infinity Inc. And I was fine with that because Roy wouldn't do it. But ultimately, I knew I couldn't draw it and write it, but I suggested people who could have definitely fit into that. And, right. you know, um, and again, I, I really loved what Ben called. I think he's a fantastic artist. I love what he did with it, but that's not what the premise was supposed to be. So the premise is if you're going to pick a time period, that's what you're selling it. You're selling it to the audience based on that. Then it kind of should be those people who did it, you know. That's it's mm -hmm. as simple as that. But yet that's stuff that seems to it seems obvious to 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 me and to you and to a ton of readers. But it's not it's not somehow connecting at the company level. I just I don't get that. You know, I mean, I mean, I also think. Yeah, no, good. So saying I also think it's an opportunity to say, like, we want to bring these things back. But what if we we're more aware of certain things, perhaps in our communications now that we might not have been right. at that point. So like. Like I, I loved, you know, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, the that that the relaunch that um that Kieran Gillen and Casper Winograd did like the other week because it was like, yeah, like we're gonna understand this, but we're also gonna have the character who was a racial stereotype not be that right, anymore. Right. Like this is your opportunity to like fix things yeah. that maybe were fucked up the first time. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely. And then like, yeah. And you can like then love it like in a better and like in like a better and different way. Right. Cause you're like, oh my gosh. I no longer have to like deal with the fact that every third thing coming out of uh, Speedy's mouth is kind of rapey. Right. I'm so excited. I guess to read a less rapey Teen Titans. Right. But see, yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, none of this stuff is trapped in amber. I mean, none of it is. Yeah. It's it's all open to reinterpretation. Um, it's just that sometimes I feel like they do throw everything out. And in, in, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, you could use you could use and build on stuff that was done. I mean, that's. I, again, that's a, a, a critique I have. I just think they've they've given up. I mean, DC definitely felt like they gave up on continuity maybe 15, 20 years ago. And we the entire time I was on Superman and on Shazam, during that era, I was trying really hard when I was on Superman to get a sense of DC continuity because I loved the fact that Marvel had a tapestry, you know? And it was so hard to get the other editors on board to just acknowledge a timeline. 
that it was it was crazy. And it should have been easier after crisis, but it wasn't for some reason. It was like Hmm. a bunch of different fiefdoms and, you know, people basically no one, no, no one as an arbiter, but just a bunch of people fighting over. Well, no, if that works, then this should be again. As a comic book writer, Chris Claremont said this years and years ago. And it's still, it always felt true, especially for Marvel, was that if you're a comic writer, you would, you're, you're basically, you, your reference point is your comic collection. And it's not meant to be that you can't write anything new, but it's that you should understand what you're working on. So if he, somebody, he said, it's like, if somebody gave me Iron Man or whatever, I'm going to find all the issues of Iron Man and read them just so I know what happened. And that seems that doesn't seem unreasonable as a as a task. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like you, you don't have to reference every single part of that, but it's good to know what that character is about, because, number one, you, you might get some ideas from it. But number two, you're going to be able to play within whatever has been done with it. You're going to be able to at least ex- extend the storyline and, and not feel like it's not the same character anymore or what have you, you know? And that's they kind of gave up on that, I think, at a certain point when they started getting people that they wanted to write a story who maybe had a couple movie credits or something. It was like you no longer have to read any back issues. Just do your own thing. Well, that screwed me, who was a reader who liked continuity. I don't want to go, wait, what what's continuity? What's not? I mean, it's simple. You just stick with it. You know, we, we used to joke about it. It's like if you have a story where some guy gets turned into a turnip, well, you don't have to say that story was a lie. You just don't have to reference it or you have to, you know what I mean? Right, right. We keep moving along. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. I know I hear you. I mean, I think that one of the problems is that the way people talk about comics so much is that it only matters if it's in continuity. And that meant that because we knew convergence was going to be the end of that line, like people were like, oh, well, it's not going to matter anyway. So why, why bother buying it? Like, and I heard that from so many people and I was like, uh, I'm going to buy pieces of this because I think that the writers or artists working on it are people whose work I enjoy. I'm sorry. Like, is that not, is that not clear? And there were, there were some good ones in there. I mean, uh, you know, I, I knew what the rules were going in and it was really pretty screwed up because it wasn't late. I mean, it's all this stuff when they first asked me to do, when I was, uh, Tom DeFalco had asked me because DeFalco was going to oversee it. And he was, he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I would love to do earth one Superman, earth two Superman. Mm. And he said, wow, great. That's exactly what I would, I would have asked you to do. And that's kind of at that point I said, well, what's the framework? Um, we don't know yet. What's the, And every question that would be things as a writer that you need to know, where is it taking place? What are the rules of (laughs) whatever? All these things they didn't know. And it was because for whatever reason, it was in flux. Like maybe it was still being uh, created, but it was that didn't that you still had a deadline that was moving. So if you look at all of them, because I read all of those convergence things, the ones who the guys who wrote them. And just said, okay, screw it. I'm not going to wait for you. I just want to do it. Those are the ones that are more mm-hmm. generic. But they're those guys were probably done on deadline, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. I was trying to be conscientious and I would hold back and like, well, what's this supposed to look like so I can give it to the artist? And a lot of that stuff happened at the very last minute. It was it just un- unfortunate because it, it was something that should have been simple. 
And the concept was simple, but it got much more complicated than it needed to be. And and unfortunately, that I think that fed more into the series that followed up and maybe hurt that a little bit mm-hmm. too. You know, the the actual uh, um, was it Jeff King had written the um, the follow up thing with the main character from the convergence thing. But uh, I mean, again, it sometimes yeah. they over you can overcomplicate stuff. And mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's the the curse of it, and that's you know, what can you do? Well, you know, DC had the first like really big mega event, which was Crisis, and you know, because that was you know, and then I, I I had high hopes for Convergence, and I got a lot of issue ones, and I didn't really buy that many issue twos. They, <laughs> they weren't that good. But what I noticed, you know, is the ones that I preferred were the ones that had not the characters I cared about, but the creative teams on it that I care Mm -hmm. about. And that dictated more as to whether or not I like the results or not. Like that was just, you know, and. But don't you think that's how, I mean, that was how I was as a reader. I was always like that. I read for the people. I read for the the writer and the artist and, you know. I I look back through my comic collection and I go, wait, why don't I have these issues and these issues? Like, oh yeah, these were fill-ins by somebody else. I didn't save them. So, I mean, oh. I was probably always like that. I think that's, you know, that was always ingrained in me, too, when we were on Superman was Mike Carlin was like, oh, you can't have a fill-in on the first year of the book of the relaunch, even though there was horrible deadline issues and stuff. It was like, mm. you can't have a fill-in. It'll just look bad. And I think how funny oh, it, it sounds so quaint now when you can't get the same team to do four issues in a row on something. No. You know? I mean, that's a, that's a work problem. That's a worker problem. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you pay people more money, then they don't have to do, this is my, look, I'm a union organizer. Right. So this is my, my perception is that if you give artists enough money so that they don't have to take 80,000 things, then they can get something done. And then the result won't be so, sh- I mean, like I have seen some shoddy stuff of like, somebody forgot to draw a nose right. and that's a character who has one. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> um, you know, like I, I'd like to believe that if they were working in like a decent uh, condition of like deadline, that they would be able to to do this. Okay. And then you wouldn't have these super random fill-ins or like two random pages by somebody different oh, yeah. that doesn't even have a, I mean, you know, if you're going to have two different artists, like, like I liked what you did with, um, in uh, one of the Power of Shazam issues where you drew a flashback sequence about Billy Batson's dad and what what his origin, like when you do stuff like that, that's, I mean, that actually is a benefit. I think it's cool to have a second artist when you're doing it different, like a flashback or something like that. But um, we did that with, we got Kurt Swan on uh, some flashback Mm -hmm. stuff and it was specifically written as a style, style change too. Cause he was right. He was doing, you know, like the uh, more of a 19. 40s or 50s faucet thing or something. I mean, you can do it. The 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 deck is kind of stacked against artists now because of so many books shipping twice a month. You can have it's the so same bad. writer, bad. but you can't. There's no way an artist is going to draw two two a month. So you don't really get the. You know, I think it's 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 tough for an artist even to make a name on a character, unless they're, you know, somehow doing the book and able to do a, a consistent run with somebody. But it's it's. There's a case with uh, all the DC stuff that I think the more exemplar, you know, the better runs of books have all been consistent teams. Mm-hmm. And generally, I will, I, I don't know how easy or hard it was for, you know, like the guys on Batman, uh, um, uh, you know, to stay together and do all this stuff. But 
a lot of the other books I think are fiddled with too much. You know, they're in the old days, they would give you a book and they would say, come up with stories. And if it didn't sell, then you, you knew you were probably gone, but nobody stepped in and kept, you know, Oh, you can't do this character or you can't do this story or last minute it's going to the printer. Hey, you need to redraw three pages or whatever. And that stuff has cropped up or to me, it cropped up with stuff I worked on that seemed to crop up more in the last, you know, 20 years than it did in the previous, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like you hire somebody, you're hiring them and you're trusting them because somehow they prove themselves to you and you let them do their work. And and, and that's where I think most of the, the, the better comics come from. They don't come from being micromanaged. Um, and that's, that's just, you know, again, the nature of it. I know that, you know, it, when we were doing stuff, you figured out oh, if you had a fill in, you might lose some sales or whatever. Um, but it wasn't like the end of the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like, Oh, if we get, if we, if, if we try this weird story, it'll ruin the comic industry. And it felt like from that 2000 on, it felt kind of like that was more of a, a guiding thing. Like, Oh, we, we can't experiment too much because, you know, we're just in worried that everything's going to explode or something. Yeah. No, I, I have a friend whose book, like the second or the it was like before the final cutoff of the first issue of the series, like i.e., like nobody had actually bought the book yet. They canceled the series just on the solicitation. Yeah, wow. and I was like, I was like, but you had no opportunity to. So that basically means your marketing department did a bad job, yeah. you know, if that was the, rather than rather than the artist or the writer. Well, like that just was so preposterous to me. In the uh, in the early 2000s, I was doing stuff for Marvel. And I do remember having a, a conversation because I was I, I kept trying to get they kept like having people leave Avengers. And I was like, guys, I would love to do Avengers. I would love to do the Avengers or Captain America or any of those characters. And I would just never get that call, even if I would find out and call. It would always be somebody else. And uh, at one point I had somebody tell me that's like, yeah, you know, the, the marketing people don't know how to sell you. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's the lamest thing I ever heard of. Yeah. They need to figure that <laughs> you know? out there. It was like, well, wait a minute. I, you, I, you, don't you sell people based on, well, look, he did this and this and this, you know, you may like this, <laughs> you know? Right. And if you don't know who he is, Hey, take a chance on it or look at this or show them the art or something. It just felt like a, the weirdest thing. I don't think I've ever heard a, a stranger thing, but I guess, you know, again, it, it depends on what pressures any of these people are getting. So, you know, maybe that mm-hmm. uh, the business had changed so much, even by that point that it's, it was, uh, you know, everybody second guessing and running a little scared or something. I guess that's possible. There's lots of running scared. I mean, because people are just so marginal and they're, Anything can anything can happen, yeah. you know, and fired at the drop of a hat. Well, we didn't even get into any any controversial stories. Oh, really? <laughs> we're already into we're already into two hours here. Oh my God, you're right. We are. I mean, I you know there there was one other story that I wanted to talk about <laughs> that I haven't mentioned yet, which is just I, I loved your issue of Planetary oh, with um, Superman and Wonder Woman mm-hmm. and Batman. Um, and there's this one panel in it of Batman, I'm sorry, of, of Clark in his jacket, but slowly descending upon the, the, the roof where they're meeting. And it's this like great juxtaposition of his jacket looking like the cape mm. 
but he's in his street clothes. And it's like, oh, that's such a fabulous image of, of, of Superman. Um, yeah, tell me, tell me about working on that Warren Ellis. That book. was fun. That was, it was, People it was love fun it. because, again, it was almost like the uh, Tom Strong, uh, Michael Moorcock thing, because Warren basically doesn't overwrite. And you you can't imagine if you if you work with somebody who challenges you to do ten panels a page, you really have to love that story to 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 live with that. And a lot of people think they they're Alan Moore and they're not Alan Moore. <laughs> so when you get something like <laughs> yes. what Warren did was Warren, and you could see why Warren gets good results working with plenty of different artists is that he doesn't put more than is comfortable on a page. In other words, his pacing is such that he he knows what the important things are, but he lets the artist have fun. And and with that planetary book, I had plenty of space to have fun with. You know, that was that was a, a really fun job to do. And that one was weird too, because when I first, that was like the I think my first real taste of internet uh, nastiness, because um, mm-hmm. I had really was kind of struggling in that early part of the 2000s. Because, you know, I'd lost my DC work and then I did some Marvel stuff and then suddenly the Marvel stuff dried up. And I was like, wow, how is this happening to me? But anyways, so I I had to, you know, call up DC again and say, I I was like, okay, I'm working with with, uh, Wildstorm and Wildstorm was now DC. And I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. But anyway, so Scott Doombier kind of rescued me in that period in a way. And and Scott was, I think, the guy who said, well, what about the, doing the, this planetary thing? And I was like, oh, that sounds fun because it's Justice League. It's not, you know, comic book Justice League. It's his Warren's kind of version of it, which was fun. So they announced me on one of those comic sites at the time. It was uh, whatever. I don't remember what, what site it was, but they had a mes- message board. And they announced me like on a, I want to say it was like a Friday or something. And nothing but like who the hell is it? Whoa, that's going to be, that's going to ter- be terrible. And blah, blah, blah. And people were like, like attacking me mm-hmm. because they announced me as the artist for this thing. And it was really crazy. I was reading this going, Whoa, this is nuts. What the heck did I ever do? And, uh, and then John uh, Cassidy jumped on the board and say, Hey dude, slow down. What are you guys talking about? You know? And he basically, mm-hmm. uh, he, he stopped this kind of free for all. And I was like, it was it was a crazy situation because again I'm like a pretty easygoing even tempered guy and I don't think I've I'm not like the type of guy who's going to be you're going to be polarized by you know I'm not going to do something that you're going to super hate or maybe even super love or whatever but so I was just really surprised by the vitriol you know and uh, and um, it was really kind of semi understandable it was the beginnings of those you know the the message boards being like kind of the wild west where no one was really uh, managing anything yeah. or, or, or anything like that. But people really like John Cassidy on planetary. So I think that was yes. part of it. Like, well, who is this guy to do this when, you know, and, and John wasn't going to be able to do it. It wasn't like I was taking work away from him, but it, right. it was just kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting little thing. But, uh, but that happened, that, that happened with the DC boards too, occasionally. And my, my, my kids always got a kick out of this because a friend of mine was on the DC boards all the time. This was in the, when DC, I guess this was like in the two thousands, it was right around the time when I was doing some of that JSA stuff with Jeff Johns. And anyways, um, he was like, this guy, a friend of mine was saying, Hey, you should go on there. Cause people are always asking about, you know, your work and, and all that. And so I was like, well, okay. I'll, so I went on there and the opening page has like a little scroll of, 
the top 10 stories or the top 10 threads, message threads. <laughs> and they're on the, on the opening page. It's like, why Jerry Ordway sucks or something, something like oh, that. Oh gosh, I'm just, so sorry. My kids looked at that what and the they hell? just thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm like, hey, come on. <laughs> it was just funny. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you can't, you, everybody's not going to like you. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's a, yeah, that's an obvious thing, but it was just, it was just funny to like, oh, that's the page I opened up on. <laughs> and of course I had to go look at the thread <laughs> Once I did, I wow. All you have to do is you just respond in there and just say, "Hey guys, how you doing?" And then everybody shuts up. <laughs> well, it's funny because like you're known. I mean, I met you on Twitter, you know, and you're known as being a guy who answers questions on Twitter and is just like a really nice person who answers people's questions when you ask them. I'm on pretty Twitter. unfiltered. It's, I'm, I'm you know? pretty unfiltered. Well, I mean, you're 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 easy to you're easy to. Uh, you talk with fans, yeah. you're receptive, you're responsive. I had, a, I have a friend who I know is like a hardcore fan of yours. And I said, I was going to have you on the show. Do you have any questions? And my friend's like, you know, he's answered them all already. So <laughs> that's okay. I was like, oh, hey. Uh, so yeah, I tell our listeners, where, where can they find you on the internet? Well, mostly. You're on yeah, Twitter. I'm mostly on Twitter. <laughs> I think Twitter's, I, I still have a Facebook page and everything, but I don't go on there that much. Yeah, that's 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 for personal. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna. Yeah. I'm not gonna bother. No, no, but that. it just. But I just mean it's, like it's. I, yeah. I just kind of got. It's it's too hard to do both. I mean, I find that mm -hmm. they're both kind of immersive places. But at least with the Twitter thing, I can shut my iPad off. <laughs> you know, with Facebook, I go yeah. on there and then I just look up at the clock and it's like, wait, how is it three or four in the morning? I got no work done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, folks can find you on Twitter as I have, which is at Jerry Ordway, J-E-R-R-Y-O-R-D-W-A-Y. Yes. Do you have an Instagram with your art on it? No, Actually, I, I don't put know most that... of my art up on Twitter. Mm. There's a, well, it does look great there indeed. There's a ton of it up there. I, I think uh, there's almost more than I could scroll through. <laughs> we should get you on Instagram too, though. I'm gonna have, we'll have to follow up on that thought. It's too much work. Um, and <laughs> it's the same. We'll, 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 we'll talk. We'll talk later. It's okay. I have, I have thoughts about this. And then um, you, I know what you're. Uh, is there a, a, a place that folks can go and just get a whole list of like here's all the here's all the work of yours that they might want to check out? Do you have a, a, a web page for that? I do. A, I have a I have a Google blog page, but I really don't do much with it either. I think I'm like I said. Mostly, I find myself just doing the little bites of Twitter and I'll uh, occasionally I'll just like, I've done this twice in the last week where news feels so depressing that I'll just start posting artwork. <laughs> and, and I think it helps, it helps alleviate or at least give people something different to do or something different to focus on. It seems like, uh, uh, it's a positive thing, you know? Oh yes. We appreciate it for sure. Um, my, my my political folks will look at my feed. They'll be like, "Well, the nice thing about your feed, Ilana, is you also retweet drawings." <laughs> like, yes, I do do that. <laughs> in addition to diatribes. Um, so, thank you again for joining oh, us, no and our listeners. Thank you as well. Um, this is Graphic Policy Radio. I, I'm here to talk about the intersection of comics, politics, and social change as much as we can possibly cover and carry. Uh, I've got some other exciting episodes in the works, including a return to. Uh, talk about some of the older episodes of the Venture Brothers show that Stephen Atwell and I didn't have a chance to go back and talk about from like seasons four and stuff like that. So hopefully we'll be having some uh, some some podcast episodes that will keep your spirits bright and fulfilled during this incredibly trying time. Um, 
And as always, if you have a mutual aid campaign or something that you would like me to boat to uh, boost online, you know how to reach me on Twitter, which I'm on a little bit too much, which is E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. And of course, always visit Graphic Policy for your comics news and reviews. And as we like to say on this show, keep it geeky. <laughs>